Hey, this is Dustin, one of the pastors at Grace Bible Church. Thanks for tuning in to listen to one of our sermons. We hope that this sermon encourages you, inspires you, and compels you towards a closer walk with Jesus and one another. If you would like to learn more about Grace Bible Church, contact us or partner with us financially, you can connect with us at www.gbc.life. Welcome to our church family. We hope that you enjoy the message. Hey, Grace Bible Church, Pastor Etienne here, and I just want to take a moment to minister with you and to you through the reading of God's Word. In Mark 10, verse 32 through 45, it reads as such. It says, And they were on the road going up to Jerusalem, and Jesus was walking ahead of them, and they were amazed. And those who followed were afraid. And taking the twelve again, he began to tell them what was to happen to him, saying, See, we're going up to Jerusalem, and the Son of Man will be delivered over to the chief priests and the scribes, and they will condemn him to death and deliver him over to the Gentiles. They will mock him and spit on him and flog him and even kill him. After three days, he will rise. Verse 35 says, And James and John, the sons of Zebedee, came up to him and said to him, Teacher, we want for you to do something for us, whatever we ask of you. And he said to them, What do you want me to do for you? And they said, Grant us to sit one at your right hand and the other at your left in your glory. Jesus said to him, You do not know what you're asking. Are you able to drink from the cup that I drink? Or to be baptized with a baptism in which I am baptized? They said to him, We are able. And Jesus said to them, The cup that I drink, you will drink. And with the baptism in which I am baptized, you will be baptized. But to sit in my right hand or at my left is not mine to grant. But it's for those for whom it had been prepared. And when the, ter when the ten heard it, they began to become indignant at James and John. And Jesus called to them and him and said, You know that those who are considered rulers of the Gentiles lord it over them, and their great ones exercise authority over them. But it shall not be so among you, but for whoever be great among you must be your servant. Whoever would be first among you must be a slave of all. For even the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve. He gave his life as a ransom for the many. Will you please join us as Pastor Cam prepares to preach the Word of God. Welcome. We're glad you guys are here. If you got a Bible, start turning with me. Mark's Gospel, the 10th chapter. We're going to be picking up the story in verse 32. Uh, hey, for a quick announcement, for the 75 or so folks who have expressed interest and reached out to us about, about launching into some sacred marriage grace groups, thank you guys so much for reaching out. Uh, you're going to be hearing from us, Pastor Dustin and myself, tomorrow. Uh, in the next couple of days, you're going to be hearing from your group leader with all of the things you need to get plugged in and to get engaged and intentional discipleship. Thank you guys so much for leaning in. We're excited about launching these handful of different grace groups all over the county. Uh, if you have no idea what I'm talking about, see me after service. We'd love to talk and chat more with you. Thank you, sir. I do not need to keep drinking coffee this late in the day. All right. Dope. Thank you. I routinely lose cups here at Grace Bible Church, <clears throat> like every week. And so people will always text me, hey, is this your cup? Hey, hey is this your cup? Uh, we, we do believe that the way that we're going to see the gospel saturate the Heartland region is by folks like you linking arms with folks like you and beginning to live in community and on mission together for the good of our cities where we live, work, learn, and play. Um, small groups, they're not just a function of the church. We long to become a church of small groups in our community. 
Uh, because we are everywhere, Grace Bible Church. We're in every industry, in every organization, in every school, in every business. And we want to leverage that for the sake of taking Jesus to every nook and cranny of the Heartland region. That's going to take us being willing to engage in community with one another. And so if you want to find out more about that, uh, let me know. Uh, keep your eyes out on our social media stuff as well. Uh, in August, we're going to get back on campus here on Wednesday nights, and we're actually going to be launching Grace University again. Grace University is our on-campus classroom environments. We're going to have women's classes, men's classes, co-ed classes, some really neat classes that are going to be launched. A good friend of mine, Kathy Withers, is going to be launching a, a class that she wrote called In the Meantime, and it's a, it's a conversation for mothers who have children in the far country, um, whether that be incarcerated or uh, whatever the situation just might be. Uh, she has just walked through enough experience uh, to bring the word of God to bear on how to encourage mothers and women to be able to see that ministry and mission to love their prodigals, but also to preach the gospel to themselves. And so that's going to be a unique small group environment on campus here in August for uh, ladies. And so if you're interested in that, we're also going to have Sarah and Jason Hernandez teaching through uh, the Bible. I think my wife and I later in October are going to be teaching through possibly a New Testament book of the Bible. So we definitely want to get you involved in some of our on-campus classroom stuff, but also off-campus in small groups. Okay. Wow. Long, long commercial. But that's okay, your third service, you know you're going to get all the extra stuff, right? All right, Mark chapter 10. If you've not been journeying with us through the gospel of Mark, uh, we've been taking our time walking through the gospel of Mark. The, the book of Mark, it neatly separates right down the middle. The first eight chapters, it's all about billboarding the identity of Jesus. Who is Jesus? That's why we call that first part of the series, Who Do You Say That I Am? Chapters one through eight, we got to see Jesus in full display, miracle worker, authoritative teacher, authority over the wind and the waves and demonic forces and spiritual forces and sickness and disease, even Jesus healing people and raising them from the dead, the first eight chapters. Now, who do you say that I am? Culminating in that final exam question. Where in, a, in chapter eight, Jesus looks at his disciples and he asks them that question. Hey, who do people say that I am? Let's get the popular opinion of the culture around us out of the way so that Jesus could look his disciples square in the eye and ask that much more intimate question, but who do you? Who do you say that I am? And Grace, we all have to answer that question. We believe that this final exam question is important because eternity really does hang in the balance. We're all going to need to answer that question. Who do we say that Jesus is? Because if he is who he says he is, if he is God in human flesh, and he really did come and live a perfectly sinless life, satisfying for us God's perfect standard of righteousness, and then dying on the cross for our sin, then it would behoove us to investigate the claims of Jesus just a little bit, don't you think? Who do you say that I am? First eight chapters of Mark. And then the book takes a shift when we get to chapter 9 through the end of the book. And it all becomes about the king and his cross. It becomes about Jesus setting his face towards Jerusalem and the cross and the purpose for which he came. And I got to be honest, like teaching the second half of the book is no fun at all. <laughs> uh, all the fun stuff's in the first half of the book where Jesus is a wave walking, miracle working, uh, holy man who is proclaiming the power of Messiah over everything. But chapter 9 to 16 is important because Jesus wants us to know 
who he is and why he came, the purpose for his coming. Mark chapter 10, verse 45, what we're going to unpack this morning is perhaps one of the best one-verse summaries on the entire book of Mark. For even the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for the many. Now, it's interesting. Last time I was up here a couple of months ago, I was teaching on Mark chapter 8, which just happened to be the first of the three predictions that Jesus makes on his way to Jerusalem about his coming death and resurrection. Three times Jesus is going to predict his coming passion, the cross and and dying and being buried and being raised again. Three times in chapter 8, in chapter 9, and chapter 10, Jesus is going to predict his coming passion. And each of those passages, there's this similar pattern that happens. He tells his disciples what's coming. He doesn't want them caught off guard of what's going to happen to him. And each time his disciples respond with brilliant humility and sober judgment, right? No, no, invariably every time Jesus tells them about his coming passion, they say something stupid or do something stupid. Incredibly selfish stuff's coming out of these disciples consistently. And so as a result, Jesus needs to pull these disciples aside and remind them of the purpose of his coming. Now, it's interesting, this third third prediction of Jesus, it's, it's perhaps the most important. Because in this prediction, we finally find out where we're heading, Jerusalem. That's the destination. But we also find out the why behind Jesus's death. Verse 45, to give himself as a ransom for many. More on that later. All right, this morning we're just, we're just going to walk through the passage verse by verse, nothing fancy. My hope is the Spirit can speak life and conviction to you, encouragement if necessary. Uh, the passage splits into three different sections. Verses 32 to 34, we see Jesus's sorrowful predic- prediction. The third time that he predicts full of sorrow what is going to befall him when he gets to Jerusalem. However, verses 35 to 41, we're going to see the selfish and shameful ambition of the sons of thunder. James and John have an agenda for Jesus, just like most of his disciples often do. And then verses 42 to 45, we're going to see the sacrificial redemption of the son of man. We're going to close out our time uh, looking at that very last story in chapter 10, which is uh, the healing of blind Bartimaeus. And while that That story is powerful and it could stand on its own. It's not supposed to because the gospel writer wants us to see how Bartimaeus' story parallels the story of James and John. All right, Mark 10. You ready? You ready? Listen, this is the main event, y'all. Seriously, I don't know if you know this, but when the people of God gather to sit under the word of God, Submitted to the spirit of God. Man, lives can be transformed. And when we have an attitude of expectancy that God can speak to us through the power of his spirit, I'm telling you, heaven and earth pays attention to when the word of God is opened up. So if this may not be your cup of tea. Um, so you don't have to do this, but if you're willing, I want to pray for us as we open up the word. And if, if you're willing to hold your hands up, just kind of in a posture of receptivity. Uh, Jesus, we, 
want to hear from you. Holy Spirit, may you be the only authorized teacher in this room. Father, speak to us. We long to be transformed by your word in your presence amongst your people. Amen. All right, let's look at Jesus' sorrowful prediction. Mark 10, 32. And they, Jesus and his disciples, they were on the road going up to Jerusalem. Why were they going to Jerusalem? Because this was the high and holy time of the year. This was Passover. Passover was one of the holiest celebrations that the people of Israel celebrated all the time. They came to celebrate that commemorative moment when God liberated Israel out of Exodus in Egypt. And they're headed up to Jerusalem, and we read that Jesus was walking ahead of them. Jesus always walked ahead of them. He usually led the march, but there's something different this time about Jesus leading the way. And they were amazed, verse 32, and those who followed were afraid. So here's the deal. These disciples, man, their lives have been flipped upside down. For the last three and a half years, they've been following after Jesus, living closely in community with him and living on mission with him. They have become convinced time and again that Jesus is the Messiah, that he is God in human flesh. They have watched his faithful compassion time and time again and his powerful works and miracles on display. They were convinced that this was Jesus, the son of man, the Messiah. And yet, in these last couple of weeks, Jesus has repeated repeatedly spoken about his death and his resurrection that awaits him. They're on the road to Jerusalem for Passover, and this should be one of those times when their spirits are soaring, and yet we read that they were amazed and that they were afraid. It's a mixed crowd with mixed emotions on the way to the holy city. End of verse 32, Jesus takes the 12 aside, the disciples, and Jesus begins to tell them once again, third time in three chapters, what's going to happen to him. Verse 33 saying, see, we're going up to Jerusalem. And the son of man will be delivered over to the chief priests and the, the scribes, and they will condemn him to death and deliver him over to the Gentiles, and they will mock him and spit on him and flog him and kill him, and after three days he will rise. Now, the three predictions that Jesus has made, this is the most specific. One, it gives us the destination, Jerusalem, but two, what's unique about this one is that it actually gives us virtually an outline of what Mark is going to tell us throughout Jesus' whole Passion Week, Mark chapter 11 through 15. Like verbatim, what's going to happen as he gets to town? Spit on and mocked and flogged and delivered and handed over and ultimately killed. This is Jesus' Passion Week that's coming. You know why we call it the Passion Week? Because it puts on display for us the passion of Jesus. Truly in the lengths he would go to purchase us back from sin and death and the grave. And so this is Jesus' sorrowful prediction. He pulls his disciples aside and he says, hey guys, I'm running out of time. This is the last time that I can tell you before we get to Jerusalem, I'm going to be handed over. I'm going to be beaten and tortured and humiliated and ultimately put to death. So why were they amazed? Well, they were amazed because of the determination on Jesus' face. Like Mark doesn't tell us why they were amazed, but Luke, the details guy, tells us in chapter 9, verse 51, if you take a look, it says, when the days drew near for him to be taken up, Jesus set his face to go to Jerusalem. 
That word set his face, that phrase, some translations render it, that he was determined to go. Luke is telling us that something clicked in Jesus and there was this new resolve in him. This steely determination, this grit that Jesus now set his face like flint to head towards Jerusalem. It's like, it's like, it's like a switch had been flipped in him and he knew, okay, it's time to get serious. I'm out of time. I'm out of time discipling and raising you guys up and displaying for you the kingdom of God. Now I need to go secure the kingdom of God. He set his face towards Jerusalem. And so they were amazed at this man on a mission that something had so changed and that nothing was going to sway him to the left or to the right. And so they were amazed, astonished. They were staggered at the fortitude of Jesus heading towards his impending doom. But it also says that they were afraid. Now, why were they afraid? Well, some scholars suggest that uh, many people in the crowd that day, they simply saw Jesus as some political figurehead. Jesus is a political leader who's going to take us to the holy city and we are going to fight against Rome and finally break the yoke of Roman occupation from our necks. And some of the guys there, they were kind of afraid, like, what is this violent revolt going to mean for us when we get to Jerusalem? Some scholars suggest that there weren't two groups at all. It was just the disciples. They were amazed, but they were also terrified because they didn't know what this was going to mean for them either. And so those are the two prevailing emotions in the text, right? Amazement and fear. However, there was something else lurking in the crowd as well, and it was about to rear its ugly head. And it was, and it always will be, selfish ambition, Because into this sober moment of Jesus' prediction, James and John, the sons of thunder, they decide to capitalize on this moment. 35 to 41 were confronted with the selfish ambition of the sons of thunder. Read with me. Verse 35. And James and John, the sons of Zebedee, they come up to him and they said to him, teacher, can we ask you a question? Nope. Teacher, hey, we had an idea we wanted to run by you. Mm, nope. Mm-mm. Uh, hey, teacher, we were hoping that you might do us a favor. Nope. Literally, in the Greek, it's do for us what we want you to do for us. Teacher, teacher, we want you to do for us whatever we ask of you. That's no way to talk to Jesus. And he said to them, because he's a kind and compassionate shepherd, what do you want me to do for you? Don't Don't forget that phrase. What do you want me to do for you? And they said to him, Jesus, we want you to grant to us to sit on your right hand and on your left hand in your glory. And Jesus said, you don't know what you're asking for. Are you able to drink my cup? Are you able to be baptized with my baptism? And their response in verse 39, of course, is, yeah, hello, yes, We can do this thing. We're able. And Jesus says, the cup that I drink, you're going to drink. My baptism, you're going to experience that. But to sit at my right hand and my left hand, it is not mine to grant. But it is for those whom it's been appointed. Verse 41, and when the 10 heard it, the other disciples, they began to be indignant and furious at James and John. Okay, so chapter 8, 9, and 10 Each time Jesus predicts his coming passion, the disciples say something stupid. You remember back in chapter 8? Jesus for the first time tells them that he's about to die. And what does Peter do? He takes him aside. He's like, hey, come here, Jesus. Like, listen, man, you got to stop with this cross talk and you dying stuff. Like, there's no way we're going to let you die. And you remember what Jesus' response is? Get behind me, what? 
Satan. You don't ever want to hear that from Jesus. I'm just, I'm just saying. But he wasn't calling Peter Satan, remember. He was simply saying, Peter, the same devilish attitude of the adversary is at work in you right now. And you are trying to get to a throne without a cross. Get behind me, Satan. Chapter 9, same thing. Jesus tells them what's coming. And what did the disciples start to do in chapter 9? They start arguing about who's going to be the greatest in the kingdom. Are you kidding me? It's like these guys are purposefully trying to miss the point. And here again, chapter 10, Jesus says, with ever clarity, guys, I'm going to be beaten. I'm going to be humiliated. I'm going to be flogged and mocked and spit on and scourged and put to death. And immediately James and John lean in and they're like, hey, can we have the best seats in the house? I mean, can, can you imagine here for a second? Like Jesus has just unloaded some really heavy news. And two of your closest followers come up to you and say, hey, Jesus, gosh, you know, by, by the way, uh, we're just thinking, we're trying to get ahead of the game here with the seating arrangement, your coming kingdom. And we're not really sure what you mean about this whole messianic kingdom, but we've been paying attention and we got enough notion to understand that you are going to sit on the throne of your father, David, forever and ever and ever. And so, well, you know, we were just talking and there's no reason for us not to mention to you. Can we have the best seats? Can we sit on your right and on your left? Here's what I think happened. Anybody out there ever heard of selective hearing? Okay, a couple of y'all. I see you, Miss Cece. Is it you or him? <laughs> selective hearing, that uncanny ability to filter out the stuff that you don't want to hear and hold on to the really important stuff that you love and that you like and that you're excited about. Here's what I think happened. I think James and John were finally listening to Jesus. They were finally dialed in, except they didn't listen to the first part. They only heard the back half. They heard about three days. And after that, I will rise. Which to them meant, yo, the kingdom is coming. Jesus is about to come in his full glory. And we better, man, we better secure our spots we better claim our places of victory next to the king of the kingdom. They skipped the parts about humiliation and torture and being brought low. And they zeroed in on the end of the story. See, in Jewish thought, to sit at the right hand of the king was the highest seat of prominence. And on the left was the second seat. In other words, James and John are like, Jesus, uh, can we be your chief of staff and your secretary of state? This wasn't loyalty to Jesus. This was loyalty to themselves. This was selfish ambition. And once again, Jesus' disciples, they misunderstood the nature of the kingdom and the character of Jesus, their king. Once again, they had an agenda for Jesus. They had a preconceived notion of how Jesus could serve them instead of how they could serve Jesus. And we do this all the time. How often do we come to Jesus with our preconceived notions and plans that we've already put into place and say, hey, Jesus, I just need you to rubber stamp this for me. We forge ahead with the best play, laid plans of our own, expecting Jesus to get on board. How often we make demands of Jesus based on what we think he can do for us. And so what James and John, they wanted here was glory. But they didn't want glory for the sake of Jesus. They wanted glory for their own sakes. Their ambition drove them to ask for status. 
They wanted to secure for themselves eternal positions of power. I was reading a commentary the other day that reminded me of a quote by the pagan philosopher Friedrich Nietzsche in the 19th century. And he basically put forth this idea that what distinguishes men from animals is not our ability to think, but the will to power and the drive within every human being to conquer, to climb the ladder, and to reach the highest place of exaltation. Don't believe me? Go look at just human history. And you will see that power play on display time and time again. R.C. Sproul passed away a couple years ago. He was a pastor of a church in St. Andrews up in Orlando. Powerful, powerful commentator and Old Testament, New Testament scholar. He writes these words. Some theologians have argued that sin is simply virtue run amok. Because God plants in the heart of every creature an aspiration for significance, but we bend that good aspiration into a desire to dominate others. This is what is driving James and John. It's a desire for glory, but not for Jesus' sake. It's for their own sake. Now, I can imagine that Jesus might have wanted to like shake his head in disappointment, but he doesn't. He is a long-suffering, good shepherd, and so instead, what does he say to them in verse 38? Guys, 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 you don't know what you're asking. Can you drink my cup? Can you endure and undergo my baptism? Jesus was trying to help them to see that the way to messianic power was not by grabbing for power, but by relinquishing it through humility and service and through suffering. That's what Jesus meant by referencing the cup and the baptism. These were two pictures from Old Testament theology, imagery that, that spoke of trouble and suffering. The cup was literally the cup of God's wrath. All of God's judgment and hatred towards sin. That one day Jesus would drink all the way to the very bottom. And to drink a cup literally meant to experience a matter fully. And then baptism. Jesus is talking about baptism here. And he's talking about being fully immersed into and experiencing, totally overwhelmed by an experience. In another place, Jesus even calls his cross a baptism. He's telling James and John, guys, you've got visions of grandeur, but you don't know what you're asking for. My first stop is not going to be a throne. It's going to be a cross. It's not going to be honor first. It's going to be humility and humiliation. It's going to be a cup of God's wrath against human sin. You don't know what you're asking for. Can you drink this cup? Can you endure my baptism? And these jokers, they're like, yeah, we're here for this. Sign us up, Jesus. We're able to do this. And Jesus, with a hint of sadness in his voice, says, I know, you will drink my cup and you will experience my baptism. And we, we know they did. Because when the spirit of God finally came to dwell in and through the early church, what happened? James was the first martyr, Acts chapter 12, verse two. King Herod ran him through with the sword for the sake of the gospel. And John, John experienced persecution after persecution. He ended up in exile on Patmos, writing his first, second, and third letter of John and writing the book of Revelation for the sake of Jesus. And so Jesus tells them in so many words, yeah, you're gonna experience a cup and a baptism, but I can't give you the seats to the right and the left. They're not mine to give. And let's be honest. 
Who was on Jesus' left and right as his moment of greatest glory? He was crucified between two thieves. Verse 41. And when the other ten heard, the other ten disciples caught wind of the conversation. They're furious, but they're not mad because of the audacity of James and John. They're mad because they didn't think of this conversation first. The selfish ambition of James and John has disrupted the unity of the 12, the very unity that Jesus was going to die to create so that the world could know that they are his disciples. That's what happens when we have selfish ambition that drives us to make a name for ourselves. So what to do, what to do. Jesus does what he has done the last two chapters. Come here, guys. Come on, come on. I told you in chapter 8, I told you in chapter 9, I got to tell you guys again, I'm about to die and I need you to get this principle. And what's the principle? Very clearly it's this. In the kingdom of God, true greatness, true greatness is measured by our service, not by the number of servants we have. True greatness is measured by our service, not by how many people attend to our every whim and want. That is what we see in Jesus. Flip over a couple of pages to the right, Philippians chapter 2. But let me show you one of the clearest pictures of true greatness ever seen in the life of Jesus Christ. Philippians 2 is probably one of the richest passages on the deity of Jesus. Jesus is God. And Philippians 2 is going to highlight that for us. Hey, room 113, there's a mama's room if you want to keep going. I'm about to preach some fire, so I don't want you to miss it. Philippians chapter 2, here's how it starts. Philippians 2 verse 6. Jesus Christ, who, although he existed in the form of God, although he was God, he did not regard equality with God a thing to be grasped, a thing to be held on to at all costs. No, instead, what does it say? He emptied himself. Say emptied himself. You know what it means for Jesus to empty himself? It doesn't mean that he ceased being God. Jesus can't cease being God. God is always God. What he did, though, was he emptied himself of his divine privileges, his godly prerogatives. He laid aside all of the trappings of glory so that instead he could take upon himself the trappings of humanity and all of our frailties. Jesus, I I need you to see the downward trajectory here. God in human flesh, the second person of the Trinity comes down and wraps himself in flesh. And then he goes even lower by taking upon him the posture of a servant. And if that's not low enough, verse 7 and 8 tells us he went even lower still by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. From sovereign of the universe to servant, to slave, to crucified as a sinner on the cross. For you and I. So that God might bestow on him a name that is above every name. That every knee will bow and every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God of the Father. Church, we should not be able to read these words and, and not be awed by the condescension of God coming to earth and becoming what we needed most. 
a substitutionary sacrifice for our sin. Jesus set aside the outward expression of his deity to express himself instead as a servant. In other words, Jesus voluntarily chose self-expenditure instead of self-acquisition. What a foreign posture for these disciples who are arguing about who's best in the kingdom and who's going to have the best seats when Jesus comes into his glory. Jesus is like, don't you guys get it? The kingdom of God is not about getting, it's about giving. It's not about securing for yourself. It's about serving and watching that as you pour yourself out, my heavenly father gives you everything you need, significance, value, worth, and riches beyond your dreams. Why? Because we have been blessed, Ephesians 1 verse 3, with every spiritual blessing in heavenly places in Christ. Everything we really need, we have in Christ. But to the degree that we don't know that Jesus is our needs met, we're gonna continue to live with a posture like James and John grabbing and grasping and holding on to and trying to secure for ourselves. And so Jesus takes them to task here. Mark chapter 10, verse 42, Jesus calls the disciples to him and he says to them, hey, you know, you know, Jewish men, you know, because you have been under the subjugation of the Roman Empire for hundreds of years, you know that those who are considered rulers of the Gentiles lord it over them and their great ones exercise authority, but it shall not be so among you. Verse 43, whoever would be great among you must be your servant and whoever would be first among you must be slave of all. Now, we don't read this anywhere in the text. But I imagine at this point, Jesus might have said to Judas, hey, Judas, you hold the money bag. Give me one of them coins. Give me one of them coins, Judas. And I imagine Judas would have flipped him a coin. And I imagine Jesus would have took the coin and would have showed it to the guys. And on one side, it would have been the face of one of the Roman governors, maybe Augustus, maybe Tiberius. And on the other side, you know what the inscription would have read? To him who deserves adoration and honor. And I imagine Jesus might have pointed at that coin and might have said to them, this, this is the way of the Gentiles. This is the way of the pagans. That's the preoccupation. Those in power use their power to lord it over other people, to take from other people honor and worth and value and significance. But not so among you. This is the world that we're caught up in. It's a dog-eat-dog world. Survival of the fittest, red in tooth and claw. But that's not how my kingdom operates. You guys know this already. You gotta get this. I'm about to go to the cross. Jesus tells them, no, no, no. The authorities in this life, in this world, they vaunt themselves, they put themselves first, but it shall not be so among you. Whoever would be great among you must serve. And whoever would be first must be a slave of all. Jesus is trying to get across to his disciples that it is in serving that greatness will be on display. That honor is found not from getting it, but from giving it. That the way up is down and the way down is up. This is Jesus' upside down and inside out kingdom that says to get power, you got to give it away. To become rich, you need to be generous with other people. To be strong, you need to embrace weakness. And to get significance and worth and value, you need to stop looking for it. 
and start to esteem other people and their stories as more important than yours and watch as you get esteem and worth and value from serving people because they're gonna know that you really have their best interests at heart because you care about them. You're not getting from them in order to make yourself more important. You're serving other people because the love of Christ is compelling you. This is an upside down kingdom. And Jesus is trying to explain to these disciples what the nature of the kingdom's all about. And then he gets, he gets to the heart of the matter, verse 45. And he gives us the foundation beneath the call for his disciples to serve one another. Verse 45, for even me, the son of man, did not come to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. Jesus' mission has always been a rescue mission. We'll come back to 45 in a minute. There's one last story that we need to get to, this story of blind Bartimaeus. Again, it can stand on its own, but it's supposed to be connected to this passage because there are parallels that the gospel writer wants us to see. Let, let me explain. Read with me. Mark 10, verse 46. And they came to Jericho, Jesus and his ragtag band of disciples. And as he was leaving Jericho with his disciples and a great crowd, Bartimaeus, a blind beggar, say blind, a blind beggar, the son of Timaeus, was sitting by the roadside. And when he heard that it was Jesus of Nazareth, he began to cry out and say, Jesus, Jesus, son of David, have mercy on me. And many rebuked him. Interesting. Who's the many? The disciples. The disciples rebuked him, telling him to be silent. These jokers are constantly telling people to be quiet. The disciples didn't want to let the children come to Jesus. The disciples didn't want other people to be preaching in Jesus' name. They didn't want blind Bartimaeus to get in the way of this procession to Jerusalem. And what does Jesus say? Because no one's going to shut Bartimaeus up. He says, he cried out even all the more, verse 48, Son of David, have mercy on me. And Jesus stopped. And cried out, call him to me. And those who have eyes to see, th this is the grace of God. When blind, broken, begging sinners cry out for mercy to the son of David, the son of David stops and responds with mercy. He says, call Bartimaeus to me. And what happens? Man, verse 50, he throws off his cloak. He springs up. He comes to Jesus, and Jesus says to him, here's how I know that this story is connected with the last one. What does Jesus say to Bartimaeus? What do you want me to do for you? Same thing that he said to James and John. Here's the connection. What do you want me to do for you? And what does Bartimaeus say? Rabbi, let me recover my sight. That word rabbi, we don't read it in the Greek New Testament, but you know what the word is? The word is rabboni. In Aramaic, it's the same word that Mary Magdalene said to Jesus in the garden when she understood, you're Jesus, my Lord and my master, Rabboni. This was a profound statement of faith from the blind beggar. Rabboni, you are the Lord, you are the master, you are the only hope for me. You are the highest court to which I can appeal. Let me regain my sight. And Jesus says, go your way. Your faith has made you well. And immediately he recovered his sight and followed Jesus because Bartimaeus' way was now Jesus' way. That's a picture of discipleship. Willing to throw off and cast restraint to come to the one who has mercy and then to follow him on the way to the cross. Now, 
Let's look at some parallels here between these two stories. In both cases, first, Jesus is met with a request. Verse 37, the brothers, James and John, say, teacher, we want you to do whatever we ask of you. And then later on in Bartimaeus' story, the request is, son of David, have mercy on me. There's the first parallel. Second parallel, both of the responses that these guys get is the same from Jesus, right? What's the question? What do you want me to do for you? Third similarity, in both stories, the parties making the request had a clear picture of who Jesus was. Their motivations were not the same. But James and John understood rightly that Jesus was the coming king of kings and lord of lords and that he rightly would reign on the throne of David forever and ever. They shouldn't have been asking for the seats on his right and left, but they had a clear picture that Jesus was the king of kings. And then there's Bartimaeus. Man, I am struck by how sound his theology is. He cries out, have mercy on me, son of David. Do you know this is the very first time in the gospel of Mark that Jesus is ever called the son of David? First time. Bartimaeus understood you are the long promised deliverer for the people of Israel and you are coming from the lineage of your father, King David. This is Bartimaeus saying, I see you. I ain't got eyes that work, but I see you. Both of them understood who they were talking to. And as a result, we see the true desires of their heart. James and John, they wanted glory. Bartimaeus wanted mercy and sight. Here's the deal, folks. All three men were blind, but only Bartimaeus knew it. That's the fourth parallel we see in this story. But it's hard to spot on the surface. We don't see it at first. But both parties making the request is suffering from blindness. James and John, they're physically seeing, but they're spiritually blind. And Bartimaeus is physically blind, but he's got spiritual eyesight that none of them have. Because he understands that the only thing I can come to Jesus with is faith and a sense of unworthiness and desperation that unless Jesus steps in, I don't have any hope. Meanwhile, we got James and John believing that God owes them something, that Jesus owes them. They come with a sense of entitlement. Teacher, we want you to do whatever we ask of you. They came to Jesus asking for glory and they got a no. Bartimaeus came asking for, for mercy and he got a yes. Again, all three men were blind, but only Bartimaeus knew it. Dane Ortland, in his book, Surprised by Jesus, writes these words. They're gonna be up on the screen. He writes, that insistent impulse that erupts from deep within to secure glory, to be established as Jesus' right-hand man or woman is blindness. For it mistakenly listens to the voice within that tells us that the way to save our lives is to save our lives. And that the way to pursue greatness or the way to become great is to pursue greatness. But Jesus flips this paradigm on its head because again, his is an upside down kingdom, an inside out kingdom. To save your life, Jesus says earlier in the gospel of Mark, you gotta be willing to lose your life for my sake. To serve, to be great, you got to be willing to serve. Okay, so how exactly do glory-craving, blinded sinners receive mercy? And is it just that we should simply call out to Jesus and call out for mercy and we should receive sight? How exactly are we to find mercy here? Here's how. The answer 
is the reason that Mark wrote the gospel in the first place. It's the very thing that he has been saying over and over and again in chapter 8 and 9 and 10. He's been telling his disciples, but they have not been listening. The king is about to take a criminal's punishment. The lion of Judah is about to be slaughtered like a lamb. And a battered and bloodied Messiah so out of sync with what hopeful Jews anticipated in their coming king. And if we're honest with what we expect out of a savior ourselves, that's what's at the very heart of the gospel of Mark. Let's close again with Mark 10:45. For even the son of man came not to be served, but to serve. You remember who, you remember what the son of man represents? I taught on this back in Mark chapter eight. The son of man was Jesus's favorite designation for himself. And the son of man comes from Daniel chapter seven. Go read it later. But Daniel chapter seven is this powerful prophetic picture where God is giving Daniel eyes to see the glorious throne of heaven. And God, the ancient of days, is seated on his throne and one comes to him like the son of man whose eyes are flames and white wool hair and his feet are burnished bronze. And the son of man, the ancient of days, says to him, will be given dominion and glory and honor and an everlasting kingdom and everyone will serve and submit to you the son of man. It's a powerful picture of the king of glory. If there's ever anyone who deserved to be served, it's Jesus, the son of man. And yet the son of man came not to be served. He came to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many ransom. Man, we don't even use that kind of language anymore unless there's a kidnapping, right? This word ransom was literally lifted off of the page of the first century economic slave market. In other words, Jesus paid a price that none of us could afford and he paid it with his life so that he might satisfy a debt that all of us owed. For the wages of sin, Romans 6.23 says, is death. We all showed up on this planet as sinners. And as a result, the wages that we have earned because of sin is death. And yet Jesus says, I'm going to pay that debt. I'm going to receive that wage on your behalf. And instead, you're going to receive my life, my righteousness, my right standing with the Father. For the wages of sin is death, but the gift of God is eternal life to those who believe in Christ. Church, Jesus asks these sons of thunder, what do you want me to do for you? He asks blind Bartimaeus, what do you want me to do for you? Do you know there's a third time that Jesus asks this question? But the third time he asks it of his heavenly father. In the garden of Gethsemane, later on in Mark chapter 14, we're not there yet. Do you remember Jesus is in the garden and he's praying to the father and he's facing the cup of God's wrath. All of God's all of God's anger and vindication against sin, God's righteous judgment against human, humanity's sin. And Jesus is looking at this cup. And what does he say to the father there in Mark chapter 14? He says, Abba, father, all things are possible from you. Remove this cup from me. Yet not my will, your will. Not what I want. What do you want, God? What is your will? Not my will, but your will, Father. James and John asked Jesus for glory. 
Bartimaeus asked Jesus for mercy. God the Father asked Jesus to lay down his life to secure both glory and mercy for us. And to, to the degree that we understand that true greatness is not found in amassing wealth and followers and, and significance at the expense of other people, but it's in serving and going low and giving our lives for one another that we find stature in the kingdom of God. We will be free. We will be free, truly free, to stop trying to make a name for ourselves because we've already received a name. We are sons and daughters of the most high God. Are you still trying to secure significance for you? You have been made in the very image of God and Jesus gave his life to purchase you back from sin and death so that he could not just save you, but so that he could come and live in you with his spirit and so that he could now use you as his hands and his feet, as his vehicle to bring his good news to every nook and cranny of where you live, work, and play. You want significance and value, mom and dad? Your significance and value is pointing your children to treasure and love Jesus because he's the one that's going to give them a name too. And to the degree that we know that we are being loved by God, we can step into a room like this, not looking for love, but looking with love. Why? Because we know that God has shed his love into our hearts through the power of his gospel. If we truly know that God is meeting our needs and loving us, we're free to give ourselves away to one another. We can come into a room like this looking for the first towel we can find to wash one another's feet. That's what Jesus did. You remember at the Last Supper? He gets up, he gets down on the ground, and he starts to wash the feet of dirty fishermen, outcasts and thieves. Oh, and Judas too, the betrayer himself. Yeah, he washed his feet too. If you are a Christian, hear me, Grace, let me land this plane. If you are a Christian, You have been joined to this life, this others-centered, sacrificial, servant-hearted life of Jesus. And as a result, you would never be at home living for yourself ever again. If you don't know that, though, then you will be preoccupied with trying to answer questions and meet needs that only Jesus can answer and meet. Jesus wants to be our needs met. Husbands, your spouses, wives, your husbands, they can't be your needs met. If you think that your significant other can meet every need of yours, that's gonna crush them. Parents, your children cannot give you significance and worth and value through their life accomplishments. That is a weight that will crush them and alienate them from you. Don't put that weight on them. Your vocation, your net worth, those things cannot name you like the God who created you can. And the way to get that name is not by trying to secure a name for yourself. It's by looking to serve people and get lost in esteeming other people and watch as God comes behind you and begins to fill in all of the gaps that you feel that you need and have.
That's the promise of the gospel. Christianity, as I often say when I get up here, is not about improving our character or staying in the proper boundaries of behavior. It's about being joined to the life of Christ and learning to give expression to his life to the people we come into contact with. In other words, there's a second mile life in you. And being joined to the life of Christ through the spirit of God, you can go the second mile with unlovable people because guess what? You were once an unlovable person. Some of y'all still are. But God so loved the world. Here's how I want to close. I'm going to simply pray and ask that you would uh, invite Jesus to reveal to you if you are trying to make a name for yourself. And if you are, you'd repent and ask him to give you the name of son or daughter. And that he would settle deep in your heart that the true significance and value you're searching for is going to be found from him and him alone. And so that you can stop placing the weight of your joy on things that death can take from you. And instead place your joy and hope in the uncreated God who put death to death. Father, would you speak to us? Father, some of our lives are so jacked up right now because we have been trying to amass significance and value and worth in the same way that the world does it, God, and it doesn't work. It doesn't work. We're never going to be satisfied if we're living by the standards of a world that is hell-bent on self-acquisition But Jesus, you show us a better way, a way of self-expenditure, a way of sacrificial love, a way of substituting ourselves for the sake of other people. Jesus, you paid the price so we get to go free from sin and death and you invite us now to pay the price so other people can experience the kind of love that you showed to us. And it hurts. It hurts to love people that kind of way but you wouldn't ask us to do that without giving us a corresponding supply of your life and your love and your joy and your peace and your patience and your kindness and your goodness and your faithfulness and your gentleness and your self-control. God, you have not called us to this and, and withheld from us the resources to get it done. No, you, Jesus, you're not just our Lord and our Savior. You're our life. You are our source and our supply. You are our means along the way. And so, Jesus, would you convince us today that you who began a good work in us is faithful to complete it and that we have what we need, Jesus. We love you, God. Thank you for loving us. Continue to love us out of the lies and out of the darkness and help us to see people the way that you see them. In Jesus' mighty name, amen.